BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Ophthalmologist Dr. Strauss has seen firsthand how the metaverse is helping surgeons practice the procedures to treat cataracts. Cataracts are the primary cause of avoidable blindness. He works with a virtual reality training platform developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International to help surgeons develop the muscle memory they need. The result? More confident, capable surgeons. And even more importantly... Patients who can see. Explore more stories like Dr. Strauss's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. Brett McKay here, and welcome to another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. The Battle of the Bulge commenced on the morning of December 16, 1944. The Allies were ill-prepared for this last desperate offensive from the Germans, and the campaign might have succeeded if a few things hadn't gotten in their way, including a single, green, 18-man platoon who refused to give up their ground to the Nazis. Alex Kershaw shares the story of these men in his book, The Longest Winter, and with us today on the show. He first explains the background of the Battle of the Bulge and how an intelligence and reconnaissance unit that had never seen combat ended up in the thick of it. And he describes the platoon's 20-year-old leader, Lyle Bauck, who was determined to carry out his orders and hold a position despite being massively outmanned and outgunned, and how his men fought until they were down to their last rounds. Alex then shares how what Bauck thought was a total failure, being captured as POWs after just a day of combat, turned out to have been an effort that significantly influenced the outcome of the Battle of the Bulge and how an unlikely platoon of heroes who initially went unrecognized for their valor became the most decorated American platoon of World War II. You'll find such an inspiring lesson in the show about living up to your duty and holding the line. After the show's over, check out our show notes at awim.is slash Battle of the Bulge. All right. Alex Kershaw, welcome back to the show. Hi, great to be with you. So uh, we're coming up on the 80th anniversary of the Battle of the Bulge. I'll be next year. And you wrote a book two decades ago about the Battle of the Bulge. It's called The Longest Winter. And what I love with, with your books that you do about World War II is you always find a small story. You find an a, a individual soldier, a unit that you can talk about the stories of these individual people in the the broader context of this epic conflict that happened with World War II. And in this story, you follow an 18-man platoon from the U.S. Army. They are facing the main thrust of the entire German assault at the Battle of the Bulge. How did you come across this story? Well, I would written a book called The Bedford Boys that appeared in 2003 and did fairly well. That was about D-Day, focusing on a company that had been activated, first of all, as a National Guard unit from one small town in Virginia, Bedford. And anyway, my editor said to me, can you pick another small group of guys and thrust them into the middle of a very big battle in World War II and the anniversary of the Battle of the Bulge is coming up. Maybe you could find a unit that 
accomplished amazing things during the Battle of the Bulge. And I, I just put a phone call through to a friend of mine who worked at the Eisenhower Center in New Orleans, University of New Orleans. And uh, I said, look, I'm looking for a, a sm- small group of guys, like the size of a football team, maybe, ideally. And I'm looking at the Battle of the Bulge. Can you make any recommendations about any unit that I could look at? And he's like immediately said, uh, INR, platoon in the 99th Division, commanded by a 20-year-old called Lyle Balk, and here's his telephone number. And I literally, a few hours later, called up Lyle Balk. This is over 20 years ago now, almost 20 years ago now. And um, he answered the phone. He was in St. Louis, and uh, he answered the phone. And I said, look, I really don't want to disturb you, but I'm really keen on writing about you and your platoon. And and he, he was okay with it. I was, like, amazed that he was very polite and agreed to me writing about him and his platoon but he had one condition which was that i had to write about every single member of the platoon that was there that day on the 16th of december 1944 first day of the german attack during the battle of the bulge and you know the to cut long story short that platoon became the most decorated of world war ii the most decorated u.s platoon i should add and I gave him my word. I said, yeah, okay, I'll do my very best to write about every guy in the platoon. And of the 18 that served in in the Battle of the Bulge, I think there were 11 still alive when I began my research. And I managed to interview all 11, amazingly. And not one of them is breathing today as I speak to you. I mean, I imagine that's one of the hard things with your job. So you've been, you started writing about World War II right when these a lot of these guys, were they were still alive, but those numbers have been dwindling every year yeah i started interviewing seriously world war ii veterans in the late 90s and you know 16 million americans served in uniform in world war ii and there are less than 120,000 alive today so you know you'd have to be 98 99 to have served in world war ii i mean some people lied about their age i met a guy just a few days ago, who was actually 16 during the Battle of the Bulge, a guy called Harry Miller, but he lied about his age. But he'd have to be 98, 99, and there aren't many 98, 99-year-olds around. <laughs> but that's the youngest you could be, you know? So, yeah, I, 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 there are very few of the dozens and dozens of World War II veterans that I interviewed who are still with us, you know? So we're going to talk about the story. Lyle Balk, he's an amazing character, amazing person. And we're going to talk about his story and what he did with his unit at the Battle of the Bulge. But what's interesting about your book, your book doesn't start at the Battle of the Bulge. It actually starts in July of that same year, 1944, in the Wolf's Lair. And this was Hitler's Prussian headquarters. Why start the story of the Battle of the Bulge here? Well, I wanted to start with a really dramatic scene, and that was the planting of a bomb by Count von Stauffenberg. It was the what ended up being a failed assassination attempt of Hitler, one of many. But it, it really shook Hitler up. It wounded him badly. He was injured, almost killed by the blast. It was in a conference room that was actually had open windows, so if the windows had been closed and it hadn't been things could have been otherwise Hitler could have been easily killed. But anyway, after that, he started to think about how he might change the course of the war. And, and in the following months, a couple of months after that July assassination attempt, he 
developed what became known as Wacht am Rhein, uh, the code word for an attack through the Ardennes in December of 1944. So I wanted to start with this very dramatic moment when a Prussian aristocrat leaves a bomb in a suitcase and almost kills Hitler, and then examine how Hitler, after that near-death event, in desperation, developed a plan that he hoped would end the war on his terms in the West that would change the outcome of World War II. So I also wanted to meet my platoon members before they shipped out from the US. So I I switched from Hitler's near death to Camp Maxi in Texas, where the INR platoon were being trained under the leadership of Lau Bauk, who was then just 20 years old. So that's how I started. And then they get, you know, they get shipped out to the UK and I believe the early fall of 1944 and then arrive in Belgium in November of 1944. And they were literally on the line for just a couple of weeks before the battle erupted. Totally green troops. supposed to be an elite unit. An INR unit is an intelligence and reconnaissance platoon. They're not supposed to be engaged in heavy combat. Quite the opposite. They're supposed to be the eyes and ears of an infantry regiment. You know, if they're spotted and they end up in a firefight, that's bad news because they're supposed to be patrolling secretly, unobserved behind enemy lines and feeding intelligence back to regimental headquarters. So, you know, when they were attacked on the 16th of December, they were not a standard infantry unit. And it was only because they had great leadership and they brought in a couple of extra 50 cal machine guns and mounted them on jeeps that they had any real firepower so yeah, that's how I started with Hitler and then following these guys to the front lines in the Ardennes. Okay, so yeah, put this in the bigger context. Hitler at this point, the, the Nazis, their backs were against the wall. This is after D-Day. Yeah. The Allies were making progress in France and then were heading into Germany. And as you, you talk about in the book, this assassination attempt, it wounded him. It kind of shook him up, but it also in a weird way enlivened Hitler. He kind of started liking his own supply. He's like, I'm awesome. Look, I, they didn't kill me. Yeah. I'm invincible. So yeah. maybe I can do this. And they started looking at portraits of Frederick the Great and yeah. kind of talking with Frederick the Great saying, I can do what you did. And that's how he came with this final attack. Yeah. I'm basically, he, you know, he hadn't been killed and therefore he thought that Providence or God had saved him for greater things and that fortune was on his side. So yeah, that's how he developed his actually very daring and, you know, really quite audacious plan at what became known as his last great gamble, you know, in the West. So yeah, you, then after that, you switch over to, to Camp Maxi, to this unit, this platoon. As you said, they're a reconnaissance platoon. And you talk about how the guys who were selected for this unit, they were handpicked. What were the characteristics that the leaders were looking for, for this INR platoon? Um, well, you know, I, I, it's interesting that you asked that question because a fair few of the guys had never expected to be in combat. They'd been in a special training program for you know college kids, what were called whiz kids, that where they were you know heading towards positions in intelligence units or some kind of duty that was not in a foxhole on the front lines. But because of the manpower shortage in the fall of 1944, the ASTP program, as it was called, was was cancelled and all these guys that were you know they very smart highly educated guys were sent into 
infantry units and um much to their dismay and disappointment um and so several of the guys in Bauk's intelligence and reconnaissance platoon were very smart very you know highly educated and uh didn't want to be there but hadn't had much choice so they were a formidable bunch they came from all over the united states they came from different backgrounds they were a diverse group different ethnicities they were you know truly an all-american unit in that sense yeah i mean you had you know one vernon leopold he was a german jewish refugee yeah part of this unit you had i think it's hernandez a mexican immigrant in there as well yeah from all over yeah, there was a guy called Milosevic who, for those who remember the Bosnian War, his distant relative was Milosevic in recent times. So he was a Serbian, uh, the son of Serbian immigrants. So Hernandez, the guy you mentioned, he was, you know, he uh, had grown up in Texas. I actually managed to interview his widow in El Paso when I was researching the book. Guys from the Midwest, from cities from rural America, a couple of really good athletes. So it was a real mixed bunch, real, you know, a really interesting range of Americans that Lyle Bout was commanding. He, he was the uh, second youngest in the platoon. There was a guy called Bill James who was 19 years old, who was his runner. But imagine that you've got, you know, 18 guys that you're in command of and you're the second youngest. <laughs> so, you haven't seen combat before and you look like a kid. I mean, Lyle Bout looked very young. So uh, the question is, you know, why should any of these guys pay you any respect or carry out your orders when you've, you've never been at war and you look like a boy? So, Right. Well, and, and Bauk has an interesting background. I want to talk about him because he's a big part of the story. Yeah. So he, he was young. He was 20 years old. But he actually, like, he got involved in the military like when he was 14, I think with the National yeah, Guard. Yeah, he joined the National Guard when he was 14. I actually have, I think I have a photograph in the book or somewhere else, but where I show a picture of him when he was just 14 in a whole group of other guys in the National Guard. And, you know, so he was very patriotic and it wasn't just because he received some pay when he turned up for drills, etc. He He was from the start, he wanted to serve his country. And by the time... You know, he got to Europe, to the Ardennes in the fall of 1944. He'd, he'd actually been wearing a uniform for almost six years. So, you know, it wasn't like he just came out of high school and ended up as a, a lieutenant. He went through officer training school. He was seen as having great potential by his commanding officer, a guy called Major Kreis, and felt really proud that he'd been sort of singled out for leadership potential and given command of this INR platoon, it was a, a big deal to Lyle Bauk. He felt very honored by that. Did he show potential for like a capacity for leadership? Yeah, he did, definitely, yeah. I mean, you know, you go through officer training school, they, they can work out pretty quickly whether you have what it takes to lead guys. Well, you never know, though. I mean, this is the, this is the big issue, which is that it doesn't matter how well-trained you are, you know, when the bullets start whizzing by, only then do you know whether you've got it or you haven't. And that's something that every combat veteran will tell you that it's not until you actually get into combat that you realize who you are or, or what, what you can do or whether your leaders are any good or not. That's always a big question mark, you know? So you've got 18 guys under this young man's command. They, none of them know either what will happen in combat because none of them have been in combat before either. So 
lots of questions, you know. When people start to try to kill you, how do you react? And they all found out on the 16th of December. Okay, so uh, this unit, they get shipped to Europe. And I, when they were in Camp Maxi, they didn't know where they were going yet. They were... I think you see this a lot in a lot of these World War II stories. These guys are at camp, and then they get the order to, to load up in a train, and they're on the train, and they're like, all right, is this going to go east, or is this going to go west? Yeah. Because if it goes east, we're going to go to Europe. If it goes yeah. west, we're getting shipped off to the Pacific Theater. And the same thing happened with these guys. They didn't know until they got on the train, and it started heading east. Yeah, and, you know, I would say that by that stage of the war, by the fall of 1944, most GIs would much rather go to Europe than the Pacific because the Pacific was just a, you know, it was a different kind of war. It was much, much, much darker, much more brutal. Japanese refusing to surrender, just a really atrocious, barbaric series of islands. You have to hop from one to another. And I, I think most GIs thought that, you know, if they were fighting against the Wehrmacht, if they're fighting against even the SS, Hitler's, you know, most devout followers that they stood a good chance of being taken prisoner that they might not be beheaded that you know if the worst came to the worst and they did end up as POWs that they could survive the war whereas you know the idea of being taken prisoner by the Japanese in the Pacific was almost as horrific as fighting them okay so they end up in Europe and they end up in Belgium in the Ardennes forest when this is late November early December give us an idea because I think maybe people have seen Band of Brothers the Battle of the Bulge scene like it was cold, wet. I mean, give us an idea. What was what were the elements like in this area? What were they up against? Well, they were in kind of very hilly terrain in the Ardennes, very thickly forested areas, and then some pasture. But it was the coldest winter in living memory. So you know, people always look at movies like The Battle of the Bulge and Patton, and uh, you see those beautiful couple of episodes from Band of Brothers. I think they're my favorite. And it is, it does look extremely cold. In fact, it was colder than usual. So people weren't kidding when they said it was literally people were freezing to death. If in foxholes, unless you hugged your foxhole buddy to share their body warmth or you took really you know, serious precautions, you did stand a good chance of, of, of not waking up, of being frozen in your foxhole. So we're very cold. The, for the first few days of the Battle of the Bulge, the skies were overcast. It snowed in different areas. And then finally the skies cleared at the 23rd of December after about a week. But the conditions were miserable. You were out there not getting hot food, subsisting on K-rations, you know, having to spend every night in a foxhole. Maybe you had a blanket over you and if you were lucky to cover the foxhole and you wake up and it would be like stiff as wood in the morning. And you did that night after night after night, and it was extremely exhausting. It was very, very, very harsh indeed, and you were constantly worried about getting trench foot. There was mud, slush, just a very, very difficult fighting conditions. And in fact, probably some of the most difficult of World War II in the Pacific. There were her- horrendous conditions, but I think the Battle of the Bulge, every veteran will tell you that the thing they remember most is is just how goddamn cold it was, you know? Yeah, and in addition to to the harsh weather conditions, the troops were just, they were inadequately supplied. And, you know, they were just generally unprepared in a lot of ways for a big attack. We were running out of men in the fall of 1944. So 
because of the broad front strategy pursued by the Allies, which meant that we had a front line running from you know the Dutch border right through to Italy, was thinly manned. We didn't have enough divisions to put on that very long front line, and the Ardennes was the most thinly manned part of that broad front. The divisions that were there were green. They hadn't seen combat before, or they were being rested after the Battle of the Hurtgen Forest, which was a real meat grinder. So thinly manned, not seen combat before, harsh conditions, and not expecting an attack. The position of the Allies in late fall of 1944 was that they were going to man this line and then gather new infantry regiments, materiel and other supplies, and then launch a spring attack into the heart of the Third Reich. They had no idea, absolutely no idea, the average soldier, that is, that the Germans were capable of launching such a massive surprise attack. And in fact, although intelligence suggested that some kind of attack could occur at the very highest levels of the Allied command, the attack took them completely by surprise. I mean, it was stunning. I mean, it caused panic and chaos. You know, over 200,000 Germans suddenly attacking you in uh, a place that you least expected in really difficult terrain. They did not expect that at all. Quite the opposite. How were they able to hide that? Because I mean, at this point, hadn't we cracked the Enigma? And so we were able to decipher codes and things like well, that? Well, very good, very good point. And it, that goes to a broader issue, which is that we over-relied on uh, having broken the German codes. And the you know, Enigma information, we kind of got lazy. We thought we knew everything the Germans were up to. But before the Battle of the Bulge, Hitler had stated that there should be no radio communication, that orders should be written by hand, that those who knew about the, the plans for the battle were to keep it within a very tight circle. Anybody found relaying information about the forthcoming plans was to be executed. And the way that the Germans actually gathered those 200,000 soldiers and you know over 500 tanks, over 1,000 artillery pieces, how they gathered them along the front line in the Ardennes is one of the great achievements of Hitler's forces in World War II. It was miraculous almost. They, so they, um, you know, the Germans strafed Allied positions to cause dis- a distraction while tanks and other men moved to the front lines. They did so after dark because they could be spotted by Allied air forces during the day. They muffled the tank tracks. They had vehicles go over straw that had been laying on roads. They made sure that the ammunition, in many cases, was carried to the front by hand, again, trying to avoid being spotted in vehicles. They even went so far as to ban soldiers from having fires with wood. They used charcoal instead so that they wouldn't create smoke, so that we couldn't spot them. Everything was done in in utmost secrecy and to avoid detection. So, yeah, they did a a superb job of gathering those forces in all three armies, well over 200,000 troops gathered. And when they attacked at 5.30, that was null hour, zero hour, uh, 5.30 a.m. on the 16th of December, they took everybody by surprise. I should add to that that there were intelligence reports coming back to the Allies that strongly suggested that some kind of attack was in the making. You know, the INR platoon itself, Laubauk's platoon, had detected strange noises and 
had reported back that something was going on. But at high levels, there was a, a really serious complacency. They just thought the Germans were incapable of launching this kind of scale of attack, that they were really a spent force in the West and didn't see it coming and didn't expect it. Who was uh, leading the attack on the German side? The overall commander was von Rundstedt. He was the overall German commander. And then you had various Wehrmacht divisions and then SS divisions. The, the main strike force, the main, or rather the spearhead of the German attack was to be entirely SS. So you know, SS stands for Schutzstaffel, that's Hitler's private army. They're above the law. They are responsible for carrying out many of the atrocities of the Second World War committed by the Germans. Um, they ran the concentration camps. And within the Waffen-SS, which is the army SS, if you like, they were the troops that Hitler trusted most toward the end of the war, especially after a Wehrmacht general, Van Stau- von Stauffenberg, had tried to kill him. So Hitler didn't trust his Wehrmacht generals, the standard army officers and generals, didn't trust them, and therefore the main responsibility for success in Bakht am Rhein, in the attack in the Ardennes, that rested on the shoulders of, of SS officers and generals, and in particular uh, a guy called Jochen Piper, who was in command of what was called Kampfgruppe Piper. That was a task force, special task force, that went ahead of the an SS Panzer Army and, and was tasked with breaking through American lines and reaching the Meuse River within 48 hours. So really, the success of the campaign, of the battle, rested just on one guy's shoulders, and that was uh, Lieutenant Colonel Jochen Piper, who led that spearhead of SS troops that attacked on the 16th of December. You know, and he was told, you've got to get here by this time, you know, don't mess around. Don't take prisoners. You know, if you get there, then we've got a chance. If you don't, the war's lost. So huge responsibility for anybody to be carrying on their shoulders. And without jumping too far ahead, Jochen Piper, you know, almost managed it. It was mission impossible, but he almost got there. We're going to take a quick break for your word from our sponsors. Wedding season is coming up, and if you are preparing for the big day, I know wedding planning can be really intimidating, but finding the perfect suit shouldn't be. Indochino makes it easy to get a fully customizable suit right from your home. Don't just wear any suit on your big day. Wear a custom made-to-measure suit. Suits start at just $499, which is about the same price you'd pay for an off-the-rack suit at a department store. And they've also got custom made-to-measure shirts starting at just $89. So I've talked about my Indochino suit on the podcast before. They've been a longtime podcast sponsor. It's navy blue. The measuring process was super easy. They got these video guides you follow. You'll need another set of hands to help you out with that. But the really fun part is customizing it. Got to customize how I wanted the lapels on the jacket, the pockets, the lining. I went no pleats on the pants on this suit. A lot of fun. And then in a few weeks, you have a made-to-measure custom suit sent directly to your door. When planning your wedding, get a suit as unique as you with Indochino. Go to Indochino.com and use code MANLINESS to get 10% off any purchase of $399 or more. That's I-N-D-O-C-H-I-N-O.com, promo code MANLINESS. Did you know Fast Growing Trees is the biggest online nursery in the U.S. with more than 10,000 different kinds of plants and over 2 million happy customers in the United States? You can grow lemon, avocado, olive, or fig trees inside your home on top of the wide variety of houseplants available. 
Fast Growing Trees makes it easy to order online and your plants are shipped directly to your door in one to two days. And along with their 30-day Alive and Thrive guarantee, they offer a free plant consultation forever. So I use Fast Growing Trees to order not an indoor tree, but an outdoor tree. There is an oak tree that was in our front yard that died a few years ago due to heat stress. Had to cut it down. There's been a blank spot that I wanted to put another tree there. I wanted a maple tree that turned bright red during the fall. And I went on Fast Growing Trees, found the tree that fit the criteria that I was looking for. Turns bright red. It's a maple tree that turns bright red in the fall. So if you want to try Fast Growing Trees, right now they have some of the best deals online, like up to half off on select plants. And listeners to our show get an additional 15% off their first purchase when they use code MANLINESS at checkout. That's an additional 15% off at FastGrowingTrees.com using code MANLINESS at checkout. FastGrowingTrees.com, code MANLINESS. Offers valid for a limited time. Terms and conditions may apply. All right, if you have a family, then you need to get term life insurance to protect them. It's one of the smartest financial decisions you can make, and the start of the new year is the perfect time to get it done so you can focus on whatever else the year has in store for you. Fabric by Gerber Life was designed by parents for parents to help you get a high-quality, surprisingly affordable term life insurance policy in less than 10 minutes. Fabric has flexible policies that fit your family and your budget with quality policies like a million dollars in coverage for less than a dollar a day. There's no risk to apply. They have a 30-day money-back guarantee, and you can cancel at any time. I remember when I was a new dad, I had a lot of thoughts going through my head. One of them was, how can I take care of my family when I'm gone if something happens to me? Well, so one of the first things I did, I got term life insurance, one of the best decisions I made. Join the thousands of parents who trust Fabric to protect their family. Apply today in just minutes at meetfabric.com slash manliness. That's meetfabric.com slash manliness. M-E-E-T fabric.com slash manliness. Policies issued by Western Southern Life Assurance Company, not available in certain states. Prices subject to underwriting and health questions. Daylight saving time is starting up again. The goal of this is to give us more daylight from March through November. By setting our clocks forward, it may feel like there are more hours in the day, but if you're hiring, it doesn't necessarily help you find qualified candidates for your roles any sooner. There is only one way to do that. ZipRecruiter. And right now, you can try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com manliness. ZipRecruiter works around the clock to help you find qualified candidates. Once you post your job on ZipRecruiter, they send it to 100 plus job sites so you can reach more of the right people. ZipRecruiter smart technology also quickly scans thousands of resumes to identify people whose skills and experience match your job. Spring forward with a new hiring partner, ZipRecruiter, and find top talent sooner. See why four out of five employers who post a job on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. Just go to this exclusive web address to try ZipRecruiter for free. ZipRecruiter.com slash manliness. Once again, that's ZipRecruiter.com slash manliness. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. And now back to the show. Okay, so let's talk about the Battle of the Bulge. So it started December 16th, 5.30 in the morning. How did it start? When did Bauk realize? Again, Bauk is like in the middle of this. Like he's at the front line, him and his unit, they're there. They had seen some German soldiers in the area, but they didn't know there was a big attack coming. When did they realize, oh my gosh, this is a, a big giant attack? Well, the barrage that preceded the attack that began at like 5.30 was one of the biggest barrages of the Second World War. So Germans just shelled the hell out of all the American positions along. You know, the front line would have been around about 50 miles long. The northern shoulder of what became the Battle of the Bulge 
was manned by the 99th Infantry Division. In the centre, you had the 106th Infantry Division and then the 28th Infantry Division. And to the south, you had other American forces that both of those shoulders on the north and the south, they performed pretty well. They withstood, you know, incredible pressure. But the south, the, the centre of the line folded pretty quickly. So the first time that Bout knew what was going on was when, you know, the skies lit up at 5.30 and he and his his platoon all jumped into their foxholes and took shelter. You know, it was a very, very powerful barrage and uh, that was the same all along the line. So that the barrage was the, the, the first, it was the wake-up call, the signal. And then after that ended around about 8 o'clock in the morning, the front lines of the German attack, the advanced troops started to break through American positions and it was around about that time in the morning that the INR platoon spotted their first first Germans who were paratroopers that had been sent ahead of Joachim Piper's SS troops. The paratroopers were there to sort of, it was believed, mop up very light American resistance because the barrage would have done its work, the, the lines were thinly held. It was hoped that there would be so much chaos and confusion and panic that uh, there would be very insignificant American resistance. And that actually was, in many cases, the care, you know, that happened to be true, but they didn't count on Lau Balkan's platoon carrying out their orders, which were to hold their positions at all costs. And that's what they did. They did, and again, they just yeah. had their their rifles, and they had that one fifty caliber on a jeep. Yeah, they actually had. I think I think they had two two right. fifty calibers, and and then you know M one rifles, and Bal could have had a carbine, which was the standard issue for an officer, but um. So yeah, they they manned positions above a small village called Lanzarath, which was you know right in the middle of the northern part of the shoulder. But more importantly, it was uh, overlooking a road which the Germans had labelled Rollbahn B. That means Route B, and that was the route that Jochen Piper was going to take to break through American lines and hit his objectives. So they happened to be in the you know the worst possible place at the worst possible time. Uh, just 18 of them in the platoon, and they were confronting, you know, a force of several hundred paratroopers. And then behind those paratroopers were Joachim Piper's SS troops and, you know, dozens and dozens of Tiger and Panther tanks. What's really amazing about this story is that under that kind of pressure, right, being so outnumbered, so outgunned, Balkan his men they would have been really tempted to run, you know, to retreat, but they didn't. They stood their ground. Yeah, I mean, when he got the orders, he decided to carry out his orders, but there were several guys in the platoon that, you know, weren't quite so happy about that because they thought they were didn't stand a chance, that, you know, they were up against this massive force and that um, what difference did it make if they went down fighting and, you know, took a few dozen or whatever with them? Some of them thought maybe it would be a better idea to pull back and regroup and form a better line of defense. That why sacrifice their lives for, you know, really no good reason. They were massively outnumbered after all. But you know, Lyle Bout was a good officer, and uh, an order was an order, and he told his men that we're staying, and you know, no one's no one's going to leave. Later in the day, when they got into really serious combat, they were attacked actually in all four times by the Germans and held their positions. But later in the day, as it the situation became increasingly hopeless. He did say, if you want to go, you can go. I'm staying, but if any of you guys want to go, you can go. 
and you know try and escape the German penetration and join other Americans and fight another day. But none of the platoon actually did that. They all stayed put. There were many cases in the first hours, the first couple of days, in fact, of the Battle of the Bulge, where the Americans did turn and run. You know, that, that was understandable. They were, you know, petrified. They were up against a much greater force, and they they turned tail. And uh, you know, that, that may have been a lack of courage, or it may have been very sensible, because, you know, they wanted to carry on fighting, and they thought by retreating they might stand a better chance of putting up a good fight. So, But that was not the case with the Iron Eye platoon. They, all, they, sta- they stayed where they stood and they fought extremely well. Yeah, you wrote about Balk. He returned to this place in 1969. And he, you said that he realized perhaps the one factor above all, their youth, had explained why he and his men had stood and held. That older men, fathers, wiser, more cautious adults would surely have retreated as soon as the Germans appeared in such superior numbers. So his youth probably played a, a role in that. Yeah, and I think he was, you know, this is the first day of, of real combat. I mean, they'd been patrolling behind enemy lines that, that had a few close shaves, but they actually hadn't in, engaged with the enemy before. So this was the first true test. And uh, I think Laobao wanted to prove himself. You know, he was young. Everyone was watching him, looking at him, thinking, well, what's this guy got? And he wanted to show that he had the right stuff, and he did. You know, you know they, they were attacked Frontally, they were on a hillside near a, a tree line. Foxholes are still there. You can actually go. I was back there in May. I went to actually went to Laobout's foxhole. So they were along a tree line, well placed, and they Bauk had done his best to reinforce the positions. He'd done what he he could, and the paratroopers that attacked them were badly led, and they ran at them across an open field, uh, open slope. It was a barbed wire fence that bisected the field. And as they were trying to climb over the fence, the 50 cows literally just mowed them down. I mean, some people say that, uh, you know, there were 500 Germans that were killed or wounded. Some people say it's more like three or four dozen. It doesn't matter. What did happen was that four times the Germans attacked up this hillside near the village of Lanzarath. And these 18 guys in the Iron Arpatoon repulsed them every time. You know, they were they were running out of ammunition by the time it was all over. It was like sort of getting dark around about four o'clock in the afternoon. People forget just how long darkness lasted in that part of the world. Um, in December 1944, you almost have 16 hours of darkness. So got light around about 8, 8.30 in the morning, got dark around 4, 4.30 in the afternoon. And by around four o'clock in the afternoon, many of the platoon were literally down to their last rounds. They'd been firing in firefight for a lot, most of the day. Uh, a couple of them were seriously wounded, and uh, miraculously only just a couple. But um, literally, they, they, you know, with a few more minutes, half an hour maybe, it would have been dark, and they had nothing left to fight with. And so it was at that point that Balk said, you know, if you want to try and get away, now is the time to do so under cover darkness. He still was going to stay. And then finally, the paratroopers got smart and realized that these full frontal assaults up this hillside were disastrous. And they decided to try and outflank the platoon's positions. And so they came in in from the flanks through woods and uh, started to seize each of the foxholes. And the way they did that was that they fired at them, they threw grenades, and then when they got close enough, they would shout out, you know, in German, 
get out, get out, or Rouse, Rouse is what they actually said, get out. And they literally pulled several of the platoon members out of the foxholes by hand. And these guys, you know, didn't give up easily. They, uh, in a couple of cases, they literally had fired their last rounds. And what role did this stand, that Balkanist unit, they, they made that day? What role did it play in the Battle of the Bulge for the Allies? Well, you know, uh, with Bout, what happened was that he was beside Bill James, his runner, in his foxhole, and suddenly the barrel of a, a machine pistol was thrust through a slit at the front of the... Uh, they, they created a really good, well-defended command post and covered it with logs. And so there was a slit about, you know, two or three feet wide by maybe six inches high. And suddenly a, the barrel of a, a German machine pistol came through and it was pointed right at Bauk. And instinctively, I mean, he didn't have time to think about it. Instinctively, he pushed it to the side and the German opened fire and and fired, unfortunately, right into Bill James's face. So unbelievably, Bill James wasn't killed, but he took a lot of rounds in his face Later on, I think he had to have over 20 plastic surgery operations to try and repair his face, really badly disfigured and bleeding everywhere at the time. You know, Bauk thought he was going to die very quickly. So Bauk was pulled out with James. James is like, you know, in and out of consciousness. Bauk doesn't surrender quickly enough. With it, put his hands in the air, rather, after it's been pulled out of his hole and is shot in the leg. And then he has to try and prop up his buddy, Bill James, who was a good friend of his too, and is marched down the hillside towards a cafe in Nazareth. And, you know, he passes German corpses. The the, um, barbed wire fence is sort of piled high with dead or dying Germans or bleeding Germans. And uh, as he's staggering down this hillside after dark with a, a German pointing a gun in his back, he hears this click and he thinks, himself oh the guy's shot me i'm dead this is what happens when you're dead you you know i'm i'm dead but i'm still on this hillside but in fact it was just the german messing with him trying to scare him by pressing the trigger on his empty barrel at least that's what our theory is today so to cut a long story short you know none of the platoon were, were killed there was a forward artillery observer that was attached to the platoon there were three guys i think there were forward artillery observers that found themselves in the position that day and a guy called Gaki, was killed. So he was the only fatality. But none of the actual platoon were killed, a couple of them seriously wounded. You know, obviously Bill James uh, really had his face almost blown off. And they're put in the cafe, Cafe Scholzen, which is the building still there after dark. And Bauk's sitting there with his buddy bleeding out, you know, his uniform soaked in his blood, and he's thinking to himself, okay, I've, <laughs> I've had one day in combat, it was a complete and utter disaster. You know, I carried out my orders, but I've got two of my platoons shot up and we're all going to be prisoners of war. You know, what a, what a great achievement. I think less than 24 hours of my first day of real war and I, I, I messed it up completely. And so he was very, you know, they, they were sent into POW camps, at a very bad time to be sent into POW camps in the Third Reich when there was very little food and the Third Reich was collapsing you know, they weren't treated particularly well. They lost a lot of weight. And all throughout that winter and the spring of nine, you know, winter 1945 and spring of 1945, Bout was haunted by what had happened in Lanzarath. He felt like a complete failure. He felt like he'd, he, you know, the one thing he'd wanted in his life since he was 14 was to serve as an army officer and to 
you know, win honor and maybe not glory, but to do his duty. And he felt like he completely failed and was very depressed. It's depressing being a POW anyway. It wrecks your mental health. But he just he felt like he'd really had achieved nothing and, and, and had failed miserably. And so it was only many years after the war in the 60s when Bill James, who did survive the war, even though his face had been you know, almost blown off, he went into surgery in the Third Reich and was operated on without anesthetic, etc. And German doctors managed to save his life. But in the 60s, Bill James read a book by John Eisenhower, who was Allied Supreme Commander Dwight Eisenhower's son. And John Eisenhower wrote a book called The Bitter Woods, which was about the Battle of the Bulge. I think it was published in 1965. And it was a really good in-depth study of what happened during the Battle of the Bulge. And in it, he recounted the actions of the platoon. He interviewed Bill James and others that were in the vicinity. And, you know, Bill James read the book and he called up Lyle Bauk out of the blue and he said, you know what? I know that you've always felt that we shouldn't talk about this. We shouldn't, you know, revisit that terrible time. But in fact, what we did was amazing because we actually held up the main strike force, the spearhead of the German attack during the Battle of the Bulge. And by holding our positions, carrying out the orders, doing our duty, even though it seemed insane and pointless at the time, we delayed Piper's strike force by maybe 24 hours. And that 24 hours, that was a very critical time that we, you know, we, we threw the SS off their timetable. And if you've only got 48 hours to get somewhere and you lose 24 hours, then you've you got real problems. And that's exactly what happened. You know, Piper was delayed by the INR platoon, by other units too, but predominantly by the INR platoon's actions that day. And that totally messed up the, the critical German schedule and made a big difference to the outcome, Eisenhower argued, and others would argue, to the outcome of the of what happened on the first and second day of the Battle of the Bulge, which was the, the really important point of that battle. You know, there were objectives that had to be reached. If they weren't reached, the battle, yes, it would continue, but ultimately it would fail. It was all about getting somewhere quickly in the first 48 hours. And so... You know, James said that, you know, we what we did was amazing. We were in the wrong place at the wrong time, but boy, by carrying out our orders, we actually made a big, big difference to that vast battle. And it is the biggest battle ever fought by the US fought by the US Army in World War Two. Almost eight hundred thousand Americans involved in some way. I think the Meuse Argonne offensive in the First World War may have come close or you know, historians can argue about which was the larger number of men involved, but it was certainly the most lethal battle for the U.S. in World War II. More Americans were killed in the Battle of the Bulge than any other single battle in World War II. I think some 19,000 lost their lives. It lasted from the 16th of December through until officially the 16th of January. The bulge in the Allied lines was erased at, at Hoofalese. So it's a month-long slugfest and very high casualties. 19,000 deaths, a very bloody difficult battle indeed. So yeah, they made a big difference. They made a really big difference to that that last great battle on the Western Front in World War II. So you mentioned John Eisenhower wrote a history and he, he concluded that Bauk and his platoon, they played a big role in giving the Allies time to yep. regroup from the surprise attack. 
But the thing is, these guys, they didn't get any recognition. They didn't receive awards immediately for their efforts on December 16th. Why is that? Why didn't they get any awards? Uh, it was because the, the importance of their actions weren't recognized until Eisenhower wrote his book that came out in 65. And then, you know, Bill James called up Bauck and said, you know, we, we did something quite extraordinary. It was very important and persuaded Bauck to try and, you know, get some kind of recognition for the platoon. And that was a long, long process. It was a very difficult process, you know, to to award medals after an action, long after an action. It's very difficult. You have to pass legislation through Congress. You have to have affidavits. It has to be very, very well documented. And to his credit, Lyle Bauck um, led that campaign because he wanted his men to be recognized he wasn't in it for himself at all, but he wanted his men to be recognized. And I think that was a way of him coming to terms with that sense of failure that he'd felt. And a public recognition of what his men had actually done would have erased that sense of, of regret and failure. And so in the late 70s, the efforts to get the platoon recognized succeeded. The platoon were awarded medals. And when you add up all the bronze stars with valor the Silver Stars, the DSCs, for the 18-man platoon, they actually became, for a single action, the most decorated U.S. platoon in World War II. So a long campaign, but ultimately successful. And, you know, Lyle Bout was very proud. Most of the platoon was still alive when they received their awards in Washington, D.C. And I think it was 1978, before the first game of the season, they appeared at Yankee Stadium on the mound and Laubaut threw out the first pitch and their night their names appeared in lights at Yankee Stadium and it was sort of Hollywood ending you know these guys had had done their duty had suffered greatly had survived the war as POWs had come back started families worked really hard and then you know more than 30 years later were finally recognized and had their names in lights and had this wonderful absolutely a Hollywood ending to this very unlikely story. So as you took a deep dive into the lives of these men, did you get any life lessons from them? I think same kind of life lessons you get from talking to anybody that has been in combat, whether it's World War II or not, um, that, you know, the route to contentment lies through service to others. So I, I think that they all felt incredibly all of the World War II veterans I've ever interviewed obviously were proud of their service, did not boast about it, did not think they'd done anything particularly special. They did their duty, they served their country, and were just lucky to come home, felt blessed that they did get to come home and have long lives. And I think they also felt very fortunate that they had got to survive, but they'd also been at a moment in world history when their actions had counted, you know, encountered a great deal. In terms of the platoon, that was was absolutely the case. You know, they, they were only in combat for maybe, you know, from 8 o'clock in the morning till 4 in the afternoon. But those 18 men, what they did in those hours, really made a huge difference in terms of, you know, us being able to vote today, us being able to live in democracies in terms of defeating the Third Reich. But those were vital hours. So the life lessons I, I should have learned by now, and I... I haven't learned enough other, you know, helping other people, being unified, putting aside your differences, 
working for others, serving others, that's where you get real contentment from. And I think the older you get, the more you realize that you've got to find some kind of cause in life that's bigger than your own ego, bigger than yourself. And the best way to do that is to help other people, you know? Well, Alex, this has been a great conversation. Where can people go to learn more about your work? At my website, www.alexkershaw.com. That's the best place to go. Or you can go on Amazon and and, and buy my books, Alex Kershaw, plug it into the, uh, the search engine. But yeah, um, you know, um, just Google me. <laughs> Fantastic. Well, Alex Kershaw, thanks for your time. It's been a pleasure. Oh, my, my pleasure. Thank you so much yet again for having me on your wonderful you got an amazing podcast there. Thank you very much. Thank you. My guest today was Alex Kershaw. He's the author of the book, The Longest Winter. It's available on amazon.com and bookstores everywhere. You can find more information about his work at his website, alexkershaw.com. Also check out our show notes at awim.is slash battle the bulge, where you find links to resources where you can delve deeper into this topic. Well, that wraps up another edition and another year of the A1 Podcast. Thank you all so much for listening to the show. We know there are thousands of podcasts that you can listen to out there. So it really means a lot that you choose to spend some time with us. Thank you for listening. Thank you for your continued support. We really do appreciate it. Also, I want to take some time to thank some people who work behind the scenes here at the show. First, Kate McKay. She's my wife and the producer and editor of the podcast. Kate works really hard to make sure the final episode that you all listen to is the best it can be. And beyond producing the podcast, Kate's also contributed a lot of great articles at artofmanliness.com. So thank you, Kate, for all that you do for Art of Manliness. Also, I want to thank Creative Audio Lab here in Tulsa. They're our sound engineers. They make sure the sound quality of our podcast are the best they can be. So thank you to Dylan and John for all that you do for the podcast. We're taking a break for the rest of the year to celebrate the holidays with our family. We'll be running some rerun episodes. From all of us here at Art of Manliness, Merry Christmas, Happy New Year. We'll see you in 2024. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.